This morning, I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and that's on page 987 in the Black Bibles around the room. And if you do not own a Bible, please, please, please feel free to take this one as a gift. When I'm finished reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and in response, you'll say, thanks be to God, which is just a way of expressing how thankful and how amazing it is that we have words from God in front of us. So let's read together. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you know, excuse me, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you with longing for that day when Jesus Christ will return. But until that day comes, Lord, help us to live as children of the light. We ask that the Holy Spirit would give us unshakable hope that is rooted in, salva in salvation that is given to us by our Lord Jesus. Help us to be good examples to one another and to be committed to one another in prayer and praise. We pray that you would guide Pastor Mark's words today as he preaches from your word. And we ask these things in your heavenly name. Amen. Good morning. What's up? What's up? Right on. This is incredible, man. I, whoo, I'm here. Some of you are like, you're here. Yeah. Congratulations to you. Yeah. You won. <laughs> Actually, I see where this is going. Actually, we won. We won. And um, we could not be more thrilled about being here. I cannot be more thrilled about being up here, and uh, I've been up on stage for the last two weeks, even just a second ago, and I haven't been able to say anything, and that's hard for a preacher, so now I got the mic, and you're all sitting, so this is a good day. And, um, and so I, man, I have so much to say in just a short amount of time, and I know there's a second service, so I got I to gotta get after it, and we're going to get in the Word, because I'm a Word guy, and uh, we're going to open up this Bible, and we're going to begin a journey over years, however God's grace has us together. Um, of pursuing Jesus together and making much of Jesus 
together and going after him hard. And that's what our hope is, and inviting a community to see Jesus, to meet Jesus, to fall in love with Jesus. That's where we're going. And before we get into that, I want to do a couple of things. One is you have amazing pastors, and I want to just take the very beginning of my time in this ministry that I've been given, this pulpit, to say you have some amazing pastors who care for you, love you, have done good work on behalf of you, are shepherding, they, they think about you, they pray for you. And, um, and I was just as encouraged in our elder meeting this last week, the way that they speak of you, the way that they know you, and, the, and not only your name, but your story. And we spent a good amount of time just talking about people and needs and how can we serve. And it was amazing. And I just want to encourage you that you have pastors who love you. And, uh, and I'm excited to call them my pastor too. And so just to encourage you. And then, but there's one pastor that I want to encourage just on, just on the upfront. And we're going to encourage all of them over the next couple weeks. But I, I'm going to invite Greg up. Is he, did he stay in? Yeah, come on up. Um, yeah. Okay. You guys know this guy. And, uh, and I have enjoyed getting to know him and been blessed by him and Gina and how warm they have welcomed us in. And you know what? Um, I was away on sabbatical this last summer, just like Kyle was on sabbatical from you. And you know what? That's, that is a kind of weight and a pressure on people that just makes it hard in the church. And Greg took up that mantle over the summer to make sure that the church remained, leading the elders, loving, pastoral shepherding, caring for you, praying, praying for us. Um, this man has done a killer job over the summer. And I just want to encourage him. And for you to encourage him. And uh, from me and the family elders, we got you a little something. Um, yeah, that, it's hockey. Yep. There's Flyer, a, flyer's orange. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a puck in there. So I love you, man. Oh, gosh, here we go. I know you're thinking, all right, come on, preacher man. Don't mess this up, you know? Somebody asked me this morning if I'm nervous. I'm like, well, are you? That's the question. Are you nervous? This is like a first date. We're like, we'll see how this goes. Before I get into that, here's what I want to do. I want to pray. And I want to start this ministry of the word by just surrendering my life, what God's doing in us, Obviously, he's doing a lot. We've got to pray for Christy. There's so much I could share, and I will share about what God has organized. Just so you know, we found this tumor, and it was an incidental thing from another scan that turned out to be nothing, that God gave a symptom, I think, in order to discover this thing. And, it was, and we were told the day, it was Monday, after everything was done at Origin in Sacramento. I had replaced myself with a guy who had been raising up for seven years, he was now going to be lead pastor, running what process. Everything was in play. Decisions were made that could not be unmade. And we're coming to Reno and Sparks, and it's like, all right, well, we're, we're not. I'm, I wanted to come kind of just like really strong, and let's do this thing, and I'm coming come somewhat weak. And one of the things I think God is doing is just endearing my family and this family together. We are going to need you. And uh, just to give you some perspective, it is, we've been told, more likely cancer than not cancer. But God doesn't deal with statistics. 
And so we are hopeful. We're fasting this week. We're praying. Our, we told our kids the news. They knew about the tumor. We told them about the potential, just the, what God might be doing last night. Lots of tears. So you could just, we just need you. And uh, I wish I was coming in stronger, but God had another plan. And you are a beautiful community. We feel so warm and welcome. And uh, before we get into this text, let me just pray. Lord Jesus, you have done a work that is beyond us. I cannot be more excited and thrilled to be standing in this spot, wanting to serve this church. Lord Jesus, thank you for uniting our lives together, uniting a story you've been writing in my life and my family's life, and a story you've been writing in each of these families' lives, and then the families of our churches together. So thank you, God, for how you've sovereignly orchestrated all things. You're not just turning bad things into good things. You are orchestrating things that look bad to those who don't have faith, that feel bad to those who could only see that thing, but not God's glory behind it all. Keep us confident. And we're not, we're not the only ones suffering this morning. So I pray, God, that we would all be confident of the story you're writing. And I pray, beginning today and every Sunday, you would hide me behind the cross of Christ so that you become more evidently seen, known, loved, praised, elevated, and transforming in our city that we love. We pray in your name. Amen. Thessalonians chapter 5, walking into this viral hope that if, if we can see the things that Paul's talking about in this letter to this uh, very secular city, a melting pot of people from all over the Roman Empire, if we could see it and really capture what Paul's throwing down in 1 Thessalonians, we, we would post it. We would send it out. It would become viral. That's the whole point of this series. And in chapter 5, he's been sharing a lot, talking a lot from sexuality, how we treat one another, to love, to belief, to truth, to doctrine, and then last week, to death. And this week, he's kind of mixing it up because last week was, how can you be confident that when you die, you're okay? That's last week. This week is, okay, we've dealt with death. What about when you're alive? And so much of our Christian faith is often thought on and, and emphasized in, a, in the death stuff. Well, you want to you wanna know Jesus because when you die, you want to know Jesus just in case. It's like your fire insurance. You know, you want to suit up, suit up and boot up before you die. And we talk about Christianity that way, but that's not what Paul is talking about. There is a death component for sure, meaning that in Christ, you're going to raise up in your body. That's going to be radical. Heaven is going to be earthy. It's going to be human. It's, it's going to be skin and tangible and touchable. And we're going to have dinner together. And we're going to go to your house. And you're going to come to my house. And we're going to, we're, we're, it's going to be everything that has been lost because of sin and rebellion, shame and death and the enemy. Heaven is very earthy. And so Paul's like, okay, well, if you get the right perspective about the end times, how do you live? That's, verse, that's chapter 5. It's not, Christianity is not just a death thing. It's a life thing. It's an everyday thing. 
And what we're doing now is a preparation. And in a small little shadow, a little fragment is a piece of what it's going to be like. And that's what this church community is meant to be. That we love one another in such a way that it looks like what life will be like when there's no sin, no selfishness, no self-elevation, no self-praise. This becomes a small little tangible picture of the kingdom of God. It is incredible and it becomes viral in a community and in a city. So Paul's focus is, okay, what about life? What about life? There's a lot of talk kind of in our current context about being Hashtag woke, right? There's a lot of conversation about woke. And, and there's some good conversations about being woke, like being awake to the realities of some minority groups, African Americans and other minorities in the U.S. That's a, that's a good thing that for maybe a long time we've, we've not really seen very clearly. And that's a, that's a good kind of awakening that is happening. Another awakening that's happening is woman woke. Where's my women at? By mine, I don't mean mine. Woman woke. Just being aware of what it's like for women in the workforce, what it's like for women in, in, in relationship to men and how those roles and those things become fuzzy and unclarified. And, and, um, and so becoming awake to what it's like to experience life through the eyes of of a woman. So you have minority and you have women and there's some other wokeness like politically woke or there's some other things where it's like it's 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 pushing this woke competition. I'm more woke than you. My son is an honor student at woke. My son eight year woke honor student. Like that's like it's just bumper stickers one after the other, you know? And then there's gender woke. Now it's it, you know just You could be whatever you want to be and be woke to the realization that gender is not man or woman or even biologically bound, but we need to wake up, right? That's another woke. And it just keeps going. And then there's like sushi woke. Come on, who's my sushi fans in here? Get out. Day one, church discipline, I'm throwing... Sushi people are so woke. They're like, are you at it? This is amazing. And, they, they, and it's like, okay, calm down, calm down. You know, it's, we've only progressed so far to have, you know, fire in our houses to cook stuff, but go ahead, eat it raw, you know? <laughs> Caveman, where's your club? Eat your sushi, you know? Like, all right. Sushi people are crazy. And I'm only saying that I can't stand sushi because I want to meet you. You're going to meet me. I'd love to know you. Don't feed me fish. Sushi people are essential oil people. That's woke. Oh, is that, a, is that a little sniffle? Here's some peppermint. Times a million. Here's a million little leaves of peppermint. It's natural. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. Yeah. And then there's essential fish oil woke. It's, a, it's essential sushi oil woke, you know? You take your fish oil. Woke. Man. And it's this competition in our culture. How wake can you be? Now, here's the Bible's assertion. The Bible's assertion, Paul's assertion here is, you can be awake to a lot of things, but if it is not the story of God's redeeming work in the world, you're not really awake. And there's one woke to rule them all. That's the little nerd. That If you catch that, you got to move out, all right, of your mom's house. There's one woke that kind of determines the rest of wokeness. And sometimes we we 
we attach ourselves to these social issues that are super important, really important. What women's perspective and experience and purpose and work in the church and value, minorities' purpose and value and 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 um, and majority culture and that relationship and all of that is essential. All of those are really good things, but they can become a gospel to us, and at the end of it, they're useless. Paul comes along and goes, let's talk about this wokeness that actually works its way down so that if you're awake to Jesus, all of a sudden these other things begin to come alive and fit into their proper place. And if you could see Jesus, all of a sudden you would see minorities. You could see Jesus, all of a sudden you would, you would see women and their value and the way that Jesus values women and their created worth. If you, if you see the gospel in its perspective, it just works its way down into our life. And that's what Paul is speaking. And the question out of five I'd have for you is, are you awake and how would you know? Are you awake and how would you know? Verse five, Paul says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers. And when that, you see that word brothers, that's actually the generic word for brothers and sisters. Isn't that great? So he's not just talking to the boys. He's going, hey, sisters, concerning that time. And this is what makes the New Testament somewhat special in comparison to what was happening in the first century is Paul often includes both brothers and sisters. He's like, hey, church, concerning the seasons. What seasons? Well, as Pastor Kyle talked about last week, the seasons of Jesus' return. As you're just looking at the trees falling and the snow and all of that, what are the seasons happening in the world that is going to usher in the new kingdom, usher in Jesus? And then you have this life after death. So concerning the seasons and times, brothers, sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. Verse two, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Here's the context. The context is death in chapter four, life in chapter five, and the focus is one day, the day of the Lord is gonna happen. Now, this is the vital theological reality. Day of the Lord has a couple things happening. One of them that I'll point out is that the day of the Lord in the Old Testament referred to a day in which not just God would return out of the sky, but it referred to a day in which everything would be held to account and everything would be restored in the order of how God has created and designed it. That's day of the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus comes along and what ends up happening, this phrase, the day of the Lord, goes from the day of God's return to the day of Jesus' return. And this phrase right here in the New Testament context is the day of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We're not talking about a nebulous God amongst a bunch of gods. We're not talking about a no-name God. We're talking about a very named God, the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus, that Jesus is going to return. So Paul's context is like, yo, Jesus is returning. Or you're like, oh, what? when, when? You don't got to know that. That's not for you. And then he's going to go into, okay, but in the meantime, Jesus is returning. Now, in the meantime, he says, you don't don't need to know 
the days or seasons. You don't need to know those things. In fact, he goes further and go, you don't need to know anything else. You don't need anything else written to you. Think about it. Think about how much time, and maybe you know some Christians or you've been to some places where it's like so much effort, so much time is on creating charts and timelines. You get a news article where some fools are sitting with a lawn chair on top of their roof, sold all their stuff, waiting for Jesus to return, freezing in the cold. You're like, you guys are suckers. You know, like, and, and, and you, you see these people make predictions about when Jesus is going to come back. Here's what the Bible says. You don't need anything more than what you know already. Here's what you know. Jesus is coming back. Okay, what else? That's it. <laughs> that's, that's all you need to know. Congratulations. You're like, I want to know more. And Jesus is like, you know, too bad. I'm God, you're not, nanner, 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 right? Like that's, that's how he speaks. That's how he speaks. So much effort spent on times. And you know what ends up happening? Two things. One is we end up loving the events of Jesus' return more than Jesus returning. Come on. Secondly, we make it awkward and weird and road, and we create roadblocks for people to meet Jesus. Here's the thing. The Bible is not National Treasure, the movie. It's not like, where's the Illuminati and how do the numbers align and how do I, like, it's not like that. The Bible is clear, outspoken. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not actually, um, it's not easy to, to like, miss. It's like right there in front of our face, Jesus is going to return. Our call is not to go and line things up and a day is like a thousand years and it is the new millennium. And blah, blah, blah. No one cares, and, you're, and it's in the way of people meeting Jesus, and you begin loving the things and not really loving the one who's returning. And so Paul's like, you don't need to know. You don't need to know. What you need to know is right now in, in your life, there is a, a day coming in which Jesus is going to return. Will you wake up? Will you wake up? So then he goes on. For yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So Paul's going to just kind of outline, here's some things that you know. You know where he's getting this from? He's getting it from Jesus. So here's what happens. Paul doesn't come along, create more information. He's like, hey, what I learned, I learned from Jesus. What you learned is what Jesus said. If you go back to the Gospels, guess what? It, Jesus said these things. Here's what we know. When the Lord returns, it'll be like a thief in the night. Wouldn't it be great? When, if you knew the day that somebody was going to break in your car, right? You'd be like, boop, boop, you know, good, I'm good. It doesn't matter where you are. In Sacramento, we always had somebody who's just chesting the doors every night. And in the last couple of years, we'd come out three or four times. I don't keep anything in my car, uh, well, you know, but some trash, and maybe they would take that. But they, they, <laughs> they, would, they would open the car, and every once in a while, we would forget to lock it. And, or because it was cold or whatever, and we just forgot. And that would be the night that somebody came in and rifled through our car and everything would be open and I'd be angry, you know, and be like, ah, got to move to Sparks, you know, like that. <laughs> but if I knew, if I knew that the day, the night that that bowhead was going to come by and try to open my door, I would have just, boop, boop, that's it. It would have been over. And if you would know the day that Jesus is going to return, it'd be great. You could, you could live whatever life you wanted. And then on the night before, you're like, dear Jesus, forgive my sins. I'm going to church all in one day. 
And you're like, I'm good, you know? Like, but we don't know that. We don't know the day that our lives are going to give an account. That's not the kind of life that God's calling us to anyway. It's not about doing some things to be ready for Jesus' return. It's about being someone anxiously waiting the return of Christ because it's him we want. And he's going to come like a thief in the night at an hour and a time that we don't know. We're not ready for. We're not prepared. So then what's the point? The point is, is you know this. Are you, are you living like this? The second thing we know about the day of Jesus, the day of the Lord, it says, verse 3, this is a great one. While people are saying there's peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come, along, come upon a pregnant woman. They're saying peace and security. This is important because Thessalonica was one of the safest cities in all of the Roman Empire. That's where this phrase, because the people of the time that Paul's talking to, they were going around going, we're good. Look at all the Roman soldiers. Look at the centurions. Look at the guards. Look at, look at, the, look at what we have. We're safe. We're... And the thing was, is like Thessalonica was a gem to the Roman Empire. They loved the collection of people groups and the imports and exports. And it was fancy. It was nice. It was upscale. And so Rome, other than Rome itself, uh, Thessalonica was this, this really beautiful gem in the Roman Empire, and they loved it, and they spent a lot of resources there, right? Because where all the fancy cool people are, that's where all the money goes. And so then that's Thessalonica. It's like this Beverly Hills inside the Roman Empire. Everybody wanted to be there. And you know what's going on? They're looking around going, we're safe. No wars. Lots of guards. Lots of peace. Lots of safety. We're policed well. And Paul's like, it's when you say you're safe, that's, that's a good sign Christ's going to return. This is amazing because isn't it true that we get most uh, kind of afraid or most conscious or most awake to the reality of Christ's return when things are like going really badly? If you go back and you read the First, America, uh, First World War or Second World War, you'll find people going, this is so bad. This has to be the thing that ushers in the return of Christ. The whole world is on fire. And then, nothing. Right? Do you, you remember even just a few years ago when ISIS was just spreading all through the Middle East? And, there, and I knew Christians who were saying, this is it. This is the army of the north. They're taking over. They're ushering in Christ. Jesus is coming. Sit on your roof. You know, like the whole thing. And where, where's ISIS today? They, they've been... They've, they've been conquered. They've been dwindling. Praise God. Christians are free again in the Middle East in some parts where they were persecuted, killed. Here's what's, here's what's amazing. Here's what, here's what the Bible says. It's not when you think everything is going to hell that Jesus is returning. It's when you think everything is not. When you believe your success, that is the most dangerous moment. And the security and peace that Paul's speaking to is not just this physical security. It's really rooted more deeply into the security people have. And now this is where we can relate in our culture, the security that people have in their understanding or rebellion against God. I don't need God. Don't care about God. He's not significant to me. I'm fine without him. When you say there's peace and security, the day of the Lord will come which means the thing we need to watch out for 
is not world events, but our hearts. That the message is, is when you feel the most safe and secure in your heart to live your own life apart from the Lord, to live your own life apart from his word, to live your own life apart from what God has called us to, that's when it's dangerous. It's in peace and security that will usher in the return of Christ. That's scary. Lastly, it says it'll come, Jesus will come like a woman in birth, pains, labor. Here's all that that means. There's no stopping it. There's no stopping that baby, let me tell you. I tried. Christy went into labor in the middle of the night. It was like 2 a.m. with our twins. And we got in the car. And all of a sudden, she's like, they're coming out. And I'm like, not in this car. They're not. <laughs> and uh, then I learned that you never um, say shh to a, to a woman in labor. <laughs> we had to park in the parking lot. There was apartment complexes. I was just trying to be in the city for the city. And, uh, and so I'm like, shh. <laughs> Uh, don't do that. Don't do that. And here, here's all it means. It means there's no stopping it. Think about this. How, how do you process? Why do we need to become awake? We need to become awake because when we think we're safe, we're actually not safe. When we're secure in our own pride, we're actually not. And it's coming like labor pains means once those, once those begin, there is no stopping the birth. And once it begins, meaning the story that God is writing, there is no off-ramp. And no matter what you believe about it, doesn't change your place in it. And that there's no stopping the reality that Jesus is going to return. And so it's an urging, a pleading to, to wake up. To wake up. And he goes on with his argument. Verse 4. But you, church, brothers, sisters, you're not in darkness. For that day to surprise you like a thief? For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. Verse 6, so then. So here's, he encapsulates this argument. You don't need more info. You don't need more Bible studies. You're not waiting to learn more in order to begin to give your life and surrender your life to Jesus. You know enough. And you're not going to get off this train anyway. So the longer that you fight against the Lord, it's not going to make a difference to the end. Jesus is going to return for you. So then, there's the word, so then, let us not sleep as others do. Now, I love this because this is like some geeky Bible stuff here. Paul is talking in chapter 4, and he uses the word sleep, and he means death. But in this chapter, he means sleep. He means unaware. And this is what's amazing is you can be sleep, you could be asleep physically and be just fine because you have surrendered to Christ. You could be asleep while you're alive and not be okay because you're not aware of the grace of God and his work in your life. So he's, he's playing on this words. And I, I mean, I, oh gosh, there's so much to talk about, but I won't talk about that. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. What's he saying? Paul is calling us to a, not just to a physical sobriety or a physical awakeness. He's calling us to a spiritual sobriety. He's saying, those who sleep, right? Let's not be asleep as others do, but let's keep awake. Now, he doesn't mean physically. 
And let's keep sober. That word sober is a, a great word. Um, it, it means awareness. If you have another translation of Scripture, it might use the word self-control. That, that's an okay option. I'm not a big fan. I mean, I didn't write the Bible or anything. so. But I, I like the idea of awareness. Sobriety, I think, is a good way. And it's not a physical, but a spiritual. So a spiritual awake. Keep spiritually awake and keep spiritually sober. Verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. The point is, is everything in here is this metaphor. Are you... You're, you're not. You're, if you're a part of the church and you've been saved by Jesus and you put your faith in Christ, guess what? You're not sleeping like other people sleep. And here's the thing is that people who are of the night, you sleep at night. You go to bed at night. You get drunk at night. You make dumb decisions at night. But you're not people of the night. You're not Batman. No, you're not. We're not people, we're people of the day. We're people of Christ. We're people of the fulfillment of all of God's promises. We're, we're people of the gospel. Think about it. When you found yourself in the worst moments, was it day or night outside? There's a reason why casinos don't have windows. There's a reason why strip clubs don't have windows. There's a reason why porn shops don't have windows. There's a reason when we're making poor decisions in whatever part of our life, it's typically night outside and or we make it night by shutting the curtains, closing the door, escaping into night. Why? Because we, we sin at night. During the day, we're active, we're out, we're with friends, we're at work, we're doing the things we're being called to do, but it's it's when we're not in the rhythm of our life. Isn't that true? If you were to think through the, some of the sin patterns in your own life, you'd find yourself in those patterns when you should be doing something else or you were supposed to be somewhere else. But, but because we're out of rhythm and because we're not being sober about our life, then we find ourselves in these cyclical patterns. And, and this is a spiritual metaphor. You, people get drunk at night. You're partying at night. You're getting wasted at night. You're getting inebriated at night. And Paul's like, guys, church, you're going to find yourself in sin, but let me remind you that you're not of the night. And you know what the Christian literally has to do if you're awake to the gospel is you have to shut the shades of your soul and you have to burrow yourself into the night in order to, to sin in the way that you want to sin. We need to come to the light. You know what the, the light is? The light is coming here into community, CG, in the word. We come to the light because we typically make our worst decisions in the dark, especially if there's spiritual darkness. How dark is that? So what's Paul getting to? Paul's like, you're not part of the night, you're part of the day. So then, be awake and be Sober, be awake and be aware. Be awake and be spiritually seen, aware, able with all of your faculties because what you need is not more information but transformation. 
And that's what Paul, right? You don't need more info. What you need is to be transformed by the thing that you already know. And here's the thing. If you've been a Christian for six months or 60 years, you have plenty of information to surrender your life this morning. We don't need more. We're not, more is great. It's helpful. It deepens us. But in order to surrender, in order to walk awake in what we know, we just, we need transformation. I know Jesus is returning. I know, I know a little bit about him. I know a little bit of the word. I've only been a Christian a short time. I'm, I just, I'm taking what I know and I'm applying. I'm surrendering to it. And we don't need more info. We need more transformation. And that's what Paul is pointing to. The first thing about being awake is that being awake is to be transformed, not informed. Which means being awake is something spiritual has to happen. Something transformational has to happen. And, and you can't do it. So the very first thing that Paul says is like, okay, if you're going to be awake, it means that something has to spiritually transform you. What is that? Verse 2. Or I mean, next, next point. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. There it is. Aware right? I need to be aware. God, how do I become aware? You got to do something in me for me to become aware. I can't do it on myself. No amount of information is going to change me. I've been going to church my whole life. Nothing has made a difference. I'm still the same person. I need something more. And so then Paul's like, all right, let's go here. Be sober, spiritually transformed, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope and of salvation. This is radical. I'm going to break a couple of these things up in a short amount of time. How do we get this transformation? Paul's like, here's the transformation. Put on. Put on. Notice what he doesn't say. Go to church more. Do more. Think better. Happy thoughts about Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, just do Get really busy for Jesus, and all of a sudden, it'll begin to make sense. He, he doesn't say that. All he says is, put it on. Put it on. The gospel is like, you know what? You don't need to join the team. You just put on the jersey, root for the team you're in. Put it on. It is, it, it's, not, it, it's not always what the Bible says. It's a lot of what the Bible doesn't say. And there's nothing in here that says, do more, be more, fix yourself, do better. No, no, just put it on. Going, God, I need to be transformed. Paul's like, how do you get transformed? You see that gospel, and we'll, we'll get there in a second. Just put it on. Just receive it. Wear the jersey. Root for the team. You get to join in. But here's another thing I love about the put it on. It doesn't say you get to create the thing that you wear. What are you putting on? You're putting on the thing God has given you not the thing you get to give yourself, which means this awakening to the reality of the day of Jesus is not going to come by you and your definitions of who God is and what God is doing in the world and what he cares about and what he doesn't. Our understanding is what God gives me, I put on. And I don't get to create it, recreate it, redefine it. I just, I'm making a choice of whether I'm going to wear it or not. But then he calls it armor. What's up? Armor. See, so, uh, here's what I like about this word armor. Two things. One, what you're wearing determines how you think and what you do. 
what you're wearing determines how you live. Good example of this. One of the benefits of growing up in Southern California is that we always, um, it was like a big thing that we become a senior. You do, you do your senior night out after graduation and you'd go to Disneyland. And you'd go to Disneyland from 10 o'clock at night until 6 in the morning. And you would go to Disneyland with 50,000 other high school students from all kinds of the high schools from all of the L.A. area. And here's, here's, what, here's what they would do. It, there was a dress code to go to Disneyland. And you would have to wear a collared shirt or a polo or a button shirt. You'd have to wear slacks or non-jeans, khakis, something like that. You'd have to wear non-tennis shoes. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to get into the door. Why and why? It's because there were so many students. And what they realized is when, when kids put on the collar and, and the girls had to wear dresses or nice slacks and good shoes. I mean, they're like on roller coaster with the high heels. It's crazy. Pandemonium. Heels going everywhere, sticking in people's eyes. I mean, it was nuts. But here's the thing. If you didn't hit the dress code, they kicked you out of the park. You had to have a dress code to go to senior night. And what they learned is they realized that before they had a dress code, they had all these fights and all kinds of problems and issues. And then they instituted a dress code. And you know what? All of a sudden, people acted differently. Because what you wear has a lot of determination of where you are and what you're doing in that thing, right? Well, when it comes to the gospel, he calls it armor. Why? Because when you put on armor, you're not just like going down to Target you know, you're going to war. If you put on armor, all of a sudden you're not lounging on the sofa, binging on Netflix because you can't because it's heavy. You put on armor, you're going something. It determines what you are about and determines where you're going. And so he goes, look, you put it on. You know what this is? It's armor, meaning it's determining somewhat of what my life ought to look like because it's not just a nice worn t-shirt and some slippers. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is armor. Why? Because we're being called into some kind of battle, really a, a battle and a waging of our soul in the city we live in. It's armor. I love that. It determines what we're doing. But then it's also armor because the gospel protects. And I think this is Paul's main point. Look what he says. You're wearing the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of salvation. First off, what Paul's doing is going all the way back to Isaiah. By the way, there's a little bit of biblical theology here, and you can circle it, and you can put Isaiah 59, verse 17, and here's what it says. Look what he's doing. This is huge. The Bible's like, boom, it's one book coming together. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, talking about God. And he put garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Here's what, here's what have been known in, in, in who God was, especially in the Jewish community, that God is this warrior, righteousness is his armor, the helmet of salvation on his head, proclaiming his ability to earn salvation and not die on our sake and to save his people. Righteousness and salvation. But here's what Paul does. Because the gospel has enlightened us. The gospel has made these things more understandable and tangible. Paul comes along and goes, no, no, no. It's not just righteousness. It's not doing more. It's not being right. What is it? It is wearing faith and love. And on, on armor, there would have been gems and crests 
And the thing that would have shined on the battlefield is the things that were on top of your armor. And the armor that we're being called to put on shines of, not of righteousness, that's God's work, but of our faith, trust, love. There is no such thing as love without faith in Christ, and there's no such thing as faith without real love and affection. Faith is not intellectual. Love is not intellectual. Love is not merely an action disconnected from something. It's very deeply connected to our faith in Jesus. And so we wear this armor, and you know what shines out? Our faith, our simple receiving. I, it's not my righteousness, it's his righteousness, and when he gives me the armor, the righteousness that I have is righteousness of faith that's been given to me, not on my account, but on God's goodness, and a, righteous, and a righteousness of love, which is affection, that is given to me, not because I mustered it up, but because God is so good to give it to me. And a helmet of salvation. Verse 9. What are you being protected from? Remember I told you there was a, a couple views of day of the Lord. There's a positive view. It's the day of Jesus' return. There's a negative view. The day of the Lord is judgment. When all things are held account. When all people are held account. And it would have been frightening. The idea of God coming back knowing all of your sin knowing all of your decisions, all of your hearts, knowing it doesn't matter whether the lights have been on or off. God sees you, knows you. You can't hide from him. There's no way out. He knows you intimately, every thought, every motivation, every sin, every moment. It, it's all there. And then what? So if you're here, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want the day of the Lord to come because I don't want, who can stand? Psalm says, God, if you mark my transgressions, who can stand? And so Paul says, don't be afraid of the day of the Lord. Why? Because the gospel that he has given you, that he has transformed you by, is an armor. And it protects you. Your faith is enough. Your love that is rooted in your faith is enough. The helmet of salvation that you put on, that, that, that protects the most valuable organ of your body, right? You're safe because the armor that God has given you to wear. And what are you safe from? Yourself, from sin, death, shame, and God's wrath. And if we don't, we don't, and, and, and that's in the text. I'm not just making that up. Verse nine, for God, listen to this church, for God has not destined us for wrath. You know what he's saying? He's going, look, the day of the Lord is scary. God knows everything. What am I going to do? You're going to put on the armor of gospel and that's protecting you from the wrath of God, which means there is no wrath coming for you because the armor is there. And what's the armor? Christ's righteousness for your sake. And the gym is on your chest. I have faith. I trust in Christ. And God's like, no wrath. Because it's all been, you have the armor. It's all been done. What are you receiving? One, God has not destined you to wrath. Whatever is going on, please, whatever you do, never say to yourself, God is angry at me. Never. Never. When you find a tumor in your head, and it's potentially cancer, don't ever say, it's because God is angry at me. God loves you. He saved you. He's given you his righteousness. And here's the promise. God has not destined you to wrath, but to save you. And whatever means that he's going to use to that end, we go, God, do it. When we were talking with our kids last night about Christy and the cancer and the whole thing and the potential, 
Here's what I was saying. I was saying, look, on the other side of this life, when you get to stand before Jesus on the day of the Lord, here's what will happen. Everything will come into such clarity that you would sign up for the things in your life that you wish didn't exist. If you knew how those things manifested or made visible God's glory, you would sign up for it again. And so you live in that right now. God is not destined you for wrath, for anger, punishment. He's destined you to be saved. Secondly, he died. Look at He's not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died. He died for you. And here's what's great. Remember the language? He slept so that you can be awake. Chapter 4, sleeping is death. Chapter 5, sleeping is unaware consciousness, soul. And what we're told is Jesus dies. He slept so that we may be awake. So when you go, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not awake enough. I don't have faith enough. We go, no, no, no. Jesus slept so that I'm awake. Jesus went to the ground so I could be made alive. And thirdly, the other thing that we put on in this armor is it protects us from the idea that God doesn't want you. Who died for us so that, so that we might live with him. Whatever you say to yourself, when you preach this gospel, you're like, I have a mustard seed. It's a tiny little ounce of faith, but I have a faith in Christ that what he's done for me is enough. And I trust him. And I wish it was more, but it's not more today. It's all I have. Does he want me? And the armor of the gospel, when you become awake and transformed by the gospel and you put it on, all of a sudden you can confidently say to yourself, God wants me. How much healing would happen in your life if you knew how much God wanted you? He wants you like crazy. He wants all the time with you. He can't wait to have eternity with you. We know that because the reason that he died and the reason that we're not destined to wrath is not just to make us robots or to tolerate us, but he died so that, listen, whether we're awake or asleep, now we're back to physical death and life, whether we've died or we're still awake, we might live with him. He, he wants you to live with him. He's calling you and he loves you like crazy. And if you could ever say to yourself, oh, here's what the gospel, I don't feel it, but here's what the gospel says to me. God wants me. God wants me, which is why as a church, we say to our community, I don't care where you've come from. We want you. We want you all day long because God wants you. Lastly, close. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up. Here's what I love. The gospel calls us to big things, but there's always an order. And that order is not you start doing things and then God's going to give you some armor and protect you and love you. No, no. He's going to call us to what it is, which is you can't transform yourself. You need something to transform you. No matter how much information I give you from this pulpit, it isn't going to change you. Something spiritual must happen. And you get to a point you're like, God, please change me. And his answer is, I'll change you. Receive in faith 
what I've done, that what I've done for you is all that you need. Not Jesus plus something else, just Jesus. Wear the gospel. Be transformed by that gospel. And then the last thing is an imperative, a command. Now start talking about it. Because here's the thing, gospel wakefulness or being awake to the gospel means not only that we need to be transformed, it means not only that we need to keep going back to the gospel, but it means that we speak up. See, there's, there's a lot of people who say they believe and love these things about God, and yet they remain silent in encouraging one another. Paul says encourage one another with these things. He doesn't say look down, think less, show them how woke you are about God in big words and theology and Bible knowledge. He doesn't say impress them in CG with your gospel wakefulness. He says encourage them. Encourage the church. You've not been called to you, a Bible, a pen, and a sermon, and a podcast. You've been called to a community of God. Encourage them. And the word encourage here is the word comfort. Synonymous. Comfort. Meaning, use the revelation of God and his love for you, his wanting of you, his death for you, his not destiny to wrath. Use that knowledge to comfort the church, and it must include words. That's what the very idea of encouragement is. You know what's amazing to me? When I hear Christians comforting one another in the exact same way that everybody else comforts people. Hey, you know what? Just try harder. Believe in yourself. Oh, you're really struggling that thing? Have you tried magnesium? Here's some supplements. Here's some essential oils. That's what the world says, guys. I mean, it's, it's not bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like a hater, you know, on essential oils. Great, fine, whatever. But it's not the gospel. And the thing we need is not just more law. Take this, do this, go for a run. Right? It's, it's not that. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, let me encourage you with what Jesus has done. And the thing that I think I get so worried about the church these days is a church that, that sings to Jesus like we just sing to Jesus, but then comforts everybody just like the world comforts them. With all kinds of false gospels, believe in yourself, have power to finish this, just make the right decisions, your marriage is suffering, just choose right things. Oh, whatever. Travel more, take less, be fulfilled. Me time, love yourself, self-care, hashtag, shut up. It's Jesus. And it's what Jesus has done. And so then, yeah, sure, give some good advice. But after you said, look, if you're not sleeping, you're full of anxiety, realize this, that Jesus went to sleep for you so that you have nothing to worry about. That in heaven, there is nothing blocking you and God. You can rest because he loves you. He wants you in all of your issues. Come, come to him, then take magnesium. This morning, some of you need to be awakened by the gospel. Put it on. Might be your first communion. Put it on. This morning, some of you need to repent for your spiritual inebriation. Maybe some of the actions in your life are actually connected to your spiritual drunkenness. 
Maybe your actual drunkenness is not really about drunkenness. It's about your spiritual life, your soul. It's not in love with Jesus. This morning, maybe one of you needs to think of a person you've been afraid to speak the gospel to. So you've kept it on a surface level, hoping not to offend. But maybe it's time to comfort them in the truth of Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you. This beautiful morning and a first sermon and an incredible journey that we have together as a church. And I pray these things for us because this is my church and my people. And together, we're going to make much of Jesus. And together, by your grace, we will be gospel awake. We pray in your name.